Hello, everybody. Okay, good to see you guys. Uh, today's passage uh, from Book of Mark, the Gospel of Mark. Um, we'll be reading from chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. Uh, if you've been following uh, in the series, you probably noticed that I skipped a section there. Uh, it's because um, during the summer, uh, my good friend, Pastor Seichi Yaginuma, uh, when he came, he preached on that very passage. So I uh, wanted to skip that. Uh, if you are interested, please do go to the website. Uh, there should be uh, the sermon on that passage that you can listen to. But we're going to uh, move forward uh, with this uh, passage today. Again, Mark chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. Let me read it for us. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, and the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. That is God's word. Uh, please inspire has with me, and let's pray together. Uh, Heavenly Father, uh, what a joyful day that we can have uh, together, that we can uh, you know, look forward to the season of Thanksgiving, where we get to celebrate uh, the fellowship with the uh, brothers and sisters in the church, as well as um, be you know, reunited with uh, our families and um, you know, get to have blessed time together with them as well. Uh, but Lord, all in all, uh, you are the source of all these things. So you are to be praised and honored, and especially in the midst of our failures and um, shortcomings and the darkness of this world, uh, because of Christ, we have this gift uh, to be celebrating all these things in your grace, God. So even now, as we go into uh, the time of the word, help us to uh, you know, celebrate and also deeply uh, you know, receive this gift uh, with gratitude and uh, be transformed by this very gift of your word. Uh, so may you uh, use me as a jar of clay uh, to deliver your word humbly and clearly. And may the rest of us, as we listen, uh, may your Holy Spirit move our hearts uh, to transform our hearts and encourage us and uh, gladden our hearts uh, through your word. Thank you, Lord. And I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, three points, uh, as usual, for, to help you follow along. Uh, first point is the misuse of fasting. And the second point is the redemption from fasting. 
And the third point is the Feast of Fasting. The title for this message is The Feast of Fasting. We'll be uh, seeing the uh, story about fasting together. First, the misuse of fasting. Verse 18, it says, Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? A little background here. The practice of fasting, you know, abstaining from food especially, was indeed commanded in the Old Testament. However, uh, it was only once a year on the Day of Atonement, otherwise known as Yom Kippur, uh, that the Israelites were required to fast. But we've seen uh, throughout the book of Mark that the scribes and the Pharisees like to go extra miles and they like to add additional rules to the scriptures. So uh, the, the Pharisees apparently fasted twice a week, uh, Mondays and Thursdays, as opposed to once a year. And here we also find the followers of John the Baptist. Uh, they apparently did the practice as well, like the Pharisees. And according to Matthew 4, uh, John the Baptist was arrested and imprisoned right before uh, Jesus came into the public scene. So by this time, they had a, you know, all the reason to be fasting and praying for their you know, imprisoned leader. And, and they probably also wanted to emulate John's rigorous lifestyle. So they decided to follow Pharisees because their practice of fasting often must have seemed fitting for their purposes. But anyways, what I need you to focus on is this aspect of how people noticed uh, that they were fasting. It's interesting because if someone's fasting, you can't really tell that they're fasting unless they show off, right? Uh, so what that means is, just think about it. Uh, the Pharisees and the John's followers uh, whatever they did, they made it obvious that they were fasting to the point that the people around them uh, knew clearly that they were fasting. If you go to Matthew 6.16, there John, oh, I'm sorry, Jesus warns his disciples that the hypocrites try to look gloomy or disfigure their faces so that their fasting may be seen by others. And by the hypocrite there, uh, Jesus is likely referring to the Pharisees. So the Pharisees must have sat uh, in like a marketplaces where many people were probably walking by, uh, by them, and they would have put on like a saggy, you know, clothes, and uh, they tried to look really miserable. So people probably went up to them, asking them, "Hey, are you okay? What, what's going on? You look really bad." And they they might have said, "I'm okay, but I'm hungry." But it's okay. This is for God. I do this twice a week. I'm okay. It's my devotion to God. And people probably saw that the Pharisees are doing that regularly, and they probably had respect for them for their intense, you know, practice for God. And what we see in the example of the Pharisees is what is called legalism. Uh, a good theologian named uh, J.I. Packer, if you go to the next slide, uh, you know, he talks about legalism in his book, 
uh, by first defining what true good deeds for God consist of. He says, uh, the good deeds for God consist of three things. So follow with me here. First, a good deed is done according to the right standard, which is God's law. Second, a good deed is from a right motive, which is to love God and others. And thirdly, a good deed has a, has a right purpose, uh, which is to elevate God and advance His kingdom and also benefit other people. So the right standard, right motive, right purpose. But according to Packer, Pharisees fail at all three. First, the Pharisees might have you know, started from God's law, but they distorted it by requiring extra rules uh, and, and chaining people down uh, with these rules. And second, the Pharisees' motive is to love themselves. Let me explain in the third point. The thirdly, the Pharisees' purpose is to elevate themselves and advance their kingdom and benefiting themselves. You know, for example, by fasting pu- publicly and obviously, they want people to give them all the attention and regard them highly. And, and they are the center of their universe where God and other people are there to serve them. And they look down on other people uh, who cannot perform as well as they do. And I think this way of defining legalism is helpful because it gets to the heart of legalism. I think whenever we talk about legalism, we just think of like all the rule keepers and just, you know, stop there. But if you go deeper into the heart, you see these three things. You see that their motive and purpose are all about themselves. That's the heart of legalism. They use God and his law and use other people to make much of themselves. So some people use religions for themselves by performing religious duties and practices so that they can feel good and moral about themselves, you know, feel virtuous. Uh, But in contrast, some people under the same system of legalism, they use non-religions too. Uh, Secularism has its own set of religious uh, rules as oxymoronic as it it sounds, of how to be successful and virtuous. Here's what I mean. Uh, People perform the rules of moving up in their social socioeconomic ladder, the rules to find right partners, and rules to even uh, give money to charities so that they feel valuable, they feel modern, they feel again, virtuous about themselves. You see, whether religion or non-religion, it is all about themselves. They are the center. They are the kings and queens. And in that line of thinking, here's a consequence of this system. If they're successful in their performance of these rules, you know, again, whether religious or non-religious, they feel quite happy about themselves and they judge and oppress others for not performing well, either overtly or covertly. But if they are not successful in these rules, what happens is that they feel worthless about themselves and will have envy towards others instead of love. Envy towards others who perform better 
than they do. In other words, their self-worth is really bound up in what they do and accomplish. So therefore, the Pharisees in this story have to go back out to the marketplace on Monday, uh, starving themselves so that they can put a check mark uh, on their to-do list, feel worthy about themselves, and have other people affirm their value. And perhaps some of us on Monday have to go back out to our office or our classes for similar reasons. Or some of us do something that has to do with the God and religion and do some even kind things to others. For what? For us, for me, to feel better about ourselves. That's the face of legalism and that's the misuse of fasting. Second point, the redemption from fasting. But now, in that face of legalism, Jesus proclaims that he has brought something new and different to the world. Verse 21, it says, No one sews a piece of uh, unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. I mean, you don't have to be a fabric expert to, uh, to know this. A brand new cloth that has not been washed uh, will shrink once you wash it in your washing machine. Uh, recently, my sister, uh, who works for a fashion company in the East Coast, uh, you know, she just wanted to do something nice for me and my family. So she, uh, using her discount uh, privilege, she sent us this like really expensive uh, brand name clothes. It's very expensive. And then, and then, you know, she asked me what size, I, you know, she should, uh, you know, get for my son, Seth, who's two years old. And, uh, <clears throat> and I said, give me, give us size 2T. Because that's the size for two-year-olds. Duh. That's how it works. So, the, we got the clothes in the mail. And of course, it fits perfectly on him. Until I wash it. And out comes shrunk clothes. So now it's like a you know two-piece uh, clothes. And now I can see his ankles when I uh, put that on him. The very expensive brand name clothes that my sister bought with the discount. With so much love and care for us. It's going to be wasted within a few months. I should have asked for 3T, obviously, just considering that new fabric shrinks when it's washed. So that's what Jesus is saying. You know, that's, that's why it makes sense what he's saying here. If you sew a new cloth to patch an old fabric, when it's washed, what's going to happen is that a new cloth will shrink and pull the old fabric to the center, and it will make bigger tear. And the point is, the new do not belong with the old. And he gives us another illustration. Verse 22. And no one puts new wine into old, old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, so are the skins. But new wine is for 
fresh wineskins. The wineskins were made of leather, and as you may know from perhaps you know leather gloves or something, at first leather is you know soft and yet uh, not easy to tear or break. It's a good material, uh, but when it's used over time, especially getting in touch with liquid, um, you know it becomes hard and brittle. It be it, it can break like a plastic. And the thing about new wine here is that you know. Uh, it's, it has not been fermented for too long. And when you put new wine into wineskin, it's going to expand because fermentation creates gas. So if you put the new wine into old wineskins, it will surely break and burst. Uh, the point is, again, the new do not belong with the old. What Jesus is saying is this. Jesus has brought something totally categorically new that cannot be contained by the old legalist system. Verse 19, look with me. It says, And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The image of bridegroom is an old one. In the Old Testament, God often called himself the bridegroom to his bride, Israel. But Israel was sinful and rebellious to God, so God called her an unfaithful bride multiple times. But in his great mercy and love for his people, God promised in the Old Testament that one day he would come and redeem her from all her sins and reclaim her as his bride. That was the promise. And guess what? In today's scene, we see Jesus coming and searching for his runaway brides who are enslaved to rules, who are so brittle and easy to break like wineskin because their security is in what they do for themselves in legalism. And he proclaims that he's the king that they should live for. But they can't break out of their own kingdom of doing, doing, doing. So Jesus lived and performed perfectly in his life, but he died on the cross as if he lived a selfish, selfish self-centered life. And those who believe in him, the gospel says, will receive his perfect life, while their broken records, you know, would be crucified on the cross. And now, covered in his holiness and purity, the bride is back with the bridegroom. And she is free from, you know, having to find her identity and security in what she does. Her identity now is not what she does, but her bridegroom's beloved. You see, she's loved not because of what she does or fails to do under legalism, but she's loved because of who she is. And who she is is Jesus' bride. And now she's able to, able to live outside of herself and her rules and can live for the one who truly matters and who can truly love her and satisfy her. That is the gospel. 
apart from the old legal system. Uh, there's a really good movie called The uh, Stranger Than Fiction. I'll uh, just quick poll here. How many of you have seen this movie? Okay, it's a few of us. Really good movie, uh, really recommended. Uh, it's a movie about a man named Harold Crick, uh, who is a uh, IRS agent. Uh, he's like a robot. I'll show you in a moment. We got two videos back to back. But first video is about you know what Harold is like. Uh, he's like a robot. He has every minute planned out each day, uh, living by the same rules he set up for himself. Uh, and he's quite alone because he has no room for other people because it's so planned out perfectly each day. So let's watch it together. Even less. Every weekday, for 12 years, Harold would brush each of his 32 teeth 76 times. 38 times back and forth, 38 times up and down. Every weekday, for 12 years, Harold would tie his tie in a single Windsor knot instead of the double, thereby saving up to 43 seconds. His wristwatch thought the single Windsor made his neck look fat, but said nothing. Every weekday, for 12 years, Harold would run at a rate of nearly 57 steps per block for six blocks, barely catching the 817 Kronika bus. His wristwatch would delight in the feeling of the crisp wind rushing over its face. And every weekday for 12 years, Harold would review 7.134 tax files as a senior auditor for the Internal Revenue Service. Harold, 89 times 1,417. 126,113. That adds up. Only taking a 45.7 minute lunch break and a 4.3 minute coffee break. Timed precisely by his wristwatch. Beyond that, Harold lived a life of solitude. Harold would walk home alone. He would eat alone. And at precisely 11.13 every night, Harold would go to bed alone, placing his wristwatch to rest on the nightstand beside him. That was, of course, before Wednesday. On Wednesday, Harold's wristwatch changed everything. It always adds. Um, so that illustrates what I was just saying, that he's very planned out person, you know, just basically build his own kingdom of rules and, you know, it's perfect, right? It serves himself well. But then this girl named Anna Pascal shows up and he falls in love and everything changes. So let's watch the next one. 
can't accept gifts, but you can give them? Listen. Oh, that seems a little inconsistent, doesn't it, Mr. Crick? Very inconsistent. No, I'll tell you what. I'll purchase them. No. No, 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 really. I'd like to purchase them. What are they? Flowers. What? I brought you flowers. Carried them all the way here? Miss Pascal, I've been odd. And I... I know that I've been odd. And... I want you. What? There, there are so many reasons. There's so many influences in my life that are telling me, at times, quite literally, that I should have come here and bring you these, but... But I'm doing this because I want you. You want me? In no uncertain terms. What? Well, isn't there some very clear and established rule about fraternization? Auditor, oddity, protocol. Yeah. Yeah, but I, I don't care. Why? Because I want you. Well... Do you mind carrying those a little bit further? Okay. Okay. For your reference, uh, did you get why he brought her flowers? It's because her job is a baker at a coffee shop. So he brought, he brought her flowers instead of flowers. Okay, okay. See the whole movie. <laughs> uh, you see, the person, Harold, uh, who had all the rules for himself, you know, lived only for himself and him alone, uh, now finds himself breaking these rules. Why? Because he found love, and love has freedom from the self-absorbed life, and the love is enabling him to live for someone beyond himself. And of course, you know, while Anna cannot fully satisfy Harold because she's not God, Jesus, when we live for him, the promise is that he will completely satisfy us with his, with his love because our identity becomes his bride. And now the question is, do you believe this? You know, when you are battered by your own failures because you didn't meet your own standard or the sense that you don't measure up and that you, know, you just feel unstable because of the instability you know, of your performance, you know, do you believe that Jesus loves you for who you are in him? 
not by what you do or fail to do. Do you believe the gospel? Uh, for me, I'll just quickly share with you, um, I'm a very introspective person. Uh, that's just really who I am, meaning that I really deeply think about every aspect of you know, who I am and my life and everything I do. Maybe a little too much um, sometimes. And I always think about you know, how I do things and how I am as a husband, father, pastor, friend, like you know, a lot of times. And most of the time uh, when I do that, I feel discouraged because honestly, I know I, I fall short in every aspect. And even last night, you know, I was driving back home and in the car, I was you know, thinking about my day and I was thinking like, man, you know, why did I do that? Uh, you know, why did I say that? You know, I just feel so far away from who I should be you know, as a good pastor or good father or etc. I was discouraged um, in the car. But during that time, you know, uh, my habit is I listened to a sermon, and this time it was by Pastor Tim Keller, and it was simply about the gospel, how you know, Jesus took my place on the cross, and because of the resurrection, uh, he gives me new identity as his child. And instantly, as I listened to that, all my burdens were gone. I realized that it's not about what I do. It's not about what I accomplish. It's all about what Jesus accomplished for me. And in freedom, I can do what pleases him, not to feed my own ego and build my own kingdom. I'm free to live for my king as long as he is willing to use me as his servant. Freedom in the gospel. Do you believe that? The redemption from fasting. Last point, the feast of fasting. So now, before we finish, we must define you know, what it means to live and do things in light of the new life Jesus has brought. Because we might misunderstand thinking that uh, this, this means we just throw away all our duties and you know, rules and everything. Is that what Jesus means? Verse 20, it says, The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. I hope you notice there that Jesus says, They will fast. You know, once he dies and he rises again, he ascends to heaven, meaning when he's you know, taken away from them physically, that's when they will fast. In other words, it was never just intention to say that fasting itself was wrong. In fact, it's such a good practice that he will instruct his disciples to do it in the future. So the point is the right timing of fasting. There's a good time to fast and there's also a bad time to fast. And taking a, a, a step further there, we can say that there is a right way to fast and there's also a bad way to fast. And lastly, as we zoom out a little more then, in conclusion, we say that rules and especially the spiritual disciplines like fasting are inherently good. They're good tools and helpful. 
what matters is how we use them. On the one hand, the bad way to use them is how the Pharisees use them, right? Uh, they use them to make much of themselves, to elevate themselves and you know, above other people. Uh, they use them to measure their religiosity and their own self-worth. That's the bad way to use them. But the right way to use them is to make much of Jesus by feasting in him. Fast, feast, feasting in him. Uh, please remember in verse 19 in the text that when we are with the bridegroom, when we are with Jesus, there is feast like at a wedding banquet. So if we choose to uh, fast from food and you know, other form of entertainment for a time, uh, we do that because we realize that those things have become addictive and got in the way of us feasting in Jesus. So we uh, fast from them so that we can enjoy Jesus and his gospel maximally. That's the purpose of fasting. It's kind of like this. You know, growing up for me, um, maybe your mom was like that too, but my mom always would not let me eat anything before, uh, you know, her cooking. And uh, I never liked that as a kid, but she was always right. You know, whenever I, you know, managed to eat something before her meal, I didn't enjoy that at all. You know, I didn't eat that much. But if I waited, especially to the point of being really hungry for a meal, for food, uh, my mom's food was the best in the world. Spiritual disciplines, likewise, you know, by which we fast from certain things and, and also say yes, not just, you know, not doing like no, 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 but also yes to doing certain things uh, can help us feast in Jesus, likewise, you know, receiving from him, you know, his bridegroom love. So we do set up, you know, these rules, these spiritual disciplines, not for the sake of, you know, the rules themselves or to find our worth in them, but to enjoy Jesus more through that. I found this little cute story. Um, it says, in 2020, Alyssa Mendoza received a surprising email from her father in the middle of the night. Uh, the message had instructions about what to do for her mother on her parents' 25th anniversary. Uh, and this was shocking because Alisa's father had passed away 10 months earlier. She discovered that he'd written and scheduled the email while he was sick, knowing he might not be there. And he had also arranged and paid for flowers to be sent to his wife for upcoming years on her birthday, future anniversaries, and Valentine's Day. And when you read this story, uh, do we say, man, the father is so legalistic because, man, you know, all these man-made holidays like birthdays, Valentine's Day, wedding anniversaries, what a waste. No, the father is using these holidays that him and his wife had set up in the course of their relationship in order to let his love for his wife, you know, to be known. Same thing with the spiritual disciplines. You know, we use our spiritual disciplines like holidays 
that we set up with God in order to experience God's love for us through them. So they're good things. We just need to use them well. So let me share with you in closing um, just briefly what I try to do in my walk with God. Uh, you know, apart from a set quiet time daily, I, I try to I try my best to uh, make sure that the words of the scripture is the very first thing that I read, uh, meaning that before I look at my phone. So I, I have a paperback Bible by my bed, uh, so that that's the first thing I read. Otherwise, I also uh, you know read the children's Bible to Seth before I drop him off at daycare, and, and that I still also use if I somehow skipped uh, reading my paperback Bible by my bed by my bedside. I really want to make sure that you know I'm not burdened by the notifications on my phone uh, before I go to God in His Word. And also recently, another thing I do is that I started pausing um, in, in the middle of the day, maybe after lunch for about you know 10 to 15 minutes, uh, where I just stay quiet and pray for uh, 10 to 15 minutes. And I, I really felt urged to do that because I found myself just so stressed out and um, I'm just, you know, like work mode uh, from morning to, um, you know, when Seth comes home from her, his daycare. And I just found myself just so anxious about all the work that I had to do. So I just try to carve out that time, just 10 to 15 minutes. I just like sit there and just pray and pause and not do anything. And we'll talk about Sabbath next week, but um, I, I try to do that. And lastly, like I shared earlier, I try my best not to waste any time when I'm driving. So I listen to a sermon or good podcast that helps me hear from God. And all, in all these things, a crucial thing I want to emphasize here is that uh, the key is to be fluid with these rules. Meaning, when I was younger, I did feel like a failure whenever I like violated my own rules and couldn't keep up with my rules. But God has given me much grace to the point that I learned that uh, to be okay with you know, skipping these rules and failing these rules because the purpose is not to keep them, but to use them to draw me closer to God daily. And I encourage that you be fluid to whatever spiritual discipline that you choose to do for your spiritual walk. But lastly, I do want to emphasize here um, something that I have been thinking about for our church. Uh, and it's this. A very important element about spiritual discipline uh, is you know, spiritual accountability in church community. Here's what I mean. Um, you know, when we're trying to have these, you know, like goals and rules uh, to help us grow, uh, it's hard when you try to do that by yourself. We become, we become like Harold, you know, just be individualistic. But the benefit of community is you have somebody walking with you and keep you accountable. And that's the beauty of community. And, and I do notice that through the pandemic, uh, we've been lacking this in this area as a church. And historically, uh, CLC, our church, you used the spring semester for, you know, this program and try to, um, you know, be spiritually disciplined together as a community uh, in that way. So what we need to do right now as you look forward 
we need to assess you know, how the you know, discipleship program went in the past and try to find a good way for us to promote uh, us growing together and having accountability partners with one another. And through that, you know, we can utilize the spiritual disciplines well uh, for individual walks as well as as a community. And so I do welcome feedback from you all, um, especially as we look forward to the members meeting. Um, you know, we're going to have a survey again for you to, um, you know, uh, share your uh, feedback. Uh, but I really want to share this now. So as we talk about spiritual disciplines and how we grow spiritually, what it means to live out the gospel so that you are aware that uh, that's where we should go. But the point is, again, the gospel, that he is the bridegroom, that he loves us for who we are. So that I can say, right now, even right now, after preaching, all is well, because God loves me for who I am. For you, after work, after classes and success and failures, you can say, God loves me for who I am in Christ. May we never lose sight of that. Let's pray together. Before we finish with the song um, and worship God together out of gratitude for the gospel, uh, I want to encourage you to uh, spend some time in prayer. Um, I'm always fascinated by all the imageries that God uses in the Bible about Himself because He knows that we need illustrations. You know, it's hard to uh, understand the realities of God and, you know, spiritual realities. So I love it when God uses, you know, our own terms such as bridegroom uh, as picture of who He is. Uh, I think when you think about that, perhaps some of us get to realize that maybe uh, some influences in your lives uh, distorted the view of God. That He is this, you know, judgmental, uh, angry person with no mercy. Justice for sure. God is a just God. But that's not all He is. He is God who searches after runaway brides. I mean, I'm really abstaining from using harsh words um, that the Bible describes uh, us in terms of you know our sin. You know, it's more than just runaway brides that the Bible uses. We are in much worse condition, but Jesus came searching going through the muds and going through um, trash field, so to speak, searching for His bride. He's our bridegroom. He wants a committed relationship where we can just simply be loved. You know, I I don't love my wife, you know, because of X, Y, and Z. She has the right to be loved by me. That's marriage. 
And that's what we have in Christ. God gave us the right to be loved by Him. May we enjoy that. Uh, and from there on, everything else flows. We don't have to rely on material things. You know, the Black Friday is coming up and I know what I want to buy. Temptation is there. But man, may I not lose the true joy, true treasure in Christ, that He loves me for who I am in Christ. Let's pray together uh, for a little bit. Uh, we enjoy this time together and then we'll sing a song and uh, we'll finish. Uh, let's pray together right now. Let's pray together. Uh, I'll close for us, but before we close, uh, let's humble ourselves and uh, just cast ourselves uh, onto His feet. Grace so free and washes over me. It's your endless love pouring down on us. We just have no idea. No idea how much God loves us. Um, it has to be the work of the Spirit in our hearts to open us and really know that that our lives will change. So can we pray right now that um, just coming before Him as you are, uh, He's not looking for you know good performance, you know good credential as you come to Him. He just wants you, and um, and may we just receive His love when He wants to bless us and pour out His love on us. Pray um, and a calls for us. Let's enjoy this time together. Heavenly Father, um, thank you for your amazing love, unending love for your children. Um, when we are far away from you, um, being chained down in our own world, in our own system, protecting ourselves, covering up our shame through, our, through what we do and accomplish, you came and invaded our lives and broke us free through your blood. Oh God, um, we know that we are on a journey where you are opening up our hearts uh, more and more as we walk along with you. May you continue to do that so that uh, you know, whenever we are battered by um, you know, life circumstances and you know, our own shame and guilt, our shortcomings, even our pride, uh, may we find refuge in you and find our true worth and identity in you, God. Thank you for the gospel. Um, and thank you that we can redeem what we do for you. Um, and we can redeem um, you know, any spiritual disciplines that um, you know, we could implement in our lives. Um, but in that uh, 
please give us grace as uh, it's so easy for us to be chained down as well. But help us to grow in every step, God. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your love that is unconditional, not depend on uh, what we do. In that we rest and find our uh, trust. Thank you, Lord.